All right, Genesis chapter 3, picking it up in verse 14. And uh, this time I have a title for the sermon, which I often come up with after the sermon, but this one I have ahead of time. It's called From Dust to Glory. From Dust to Glory. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turneth every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that once again we might appreciate that the exclusivity of our salvation rests entirely in the work of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as I was studying over the years, I should say, um, I found some very interesting things in Genesis chapter 3 that we didn't talk about last week. And so I wanted to talk about that today. I want to talk a little bit about um, Satan. He has many names in Scripture. The ones that we're going to talk about today would be Satan, which means adversary, and devil, which means accuser. And both of those, we will see, um, manifest itself in the things that he does um, throughout the course of um, history. So I found interesting the statements and comments that we read here in Genesis chapter 14, where it talks about how Satan, who's portrayed here as a serpent, will go about on his belly, um, and he shall eat dust. That's a very interesting thing for Satan to eat. I mean, we know that the serpent here represents the devil. The Lord's going to tell us that in Revelation chapter 12. And so why would he be eating dust? And what does that mean for Satan to eat dust? Dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. So we can appreciate the fact that he has a life and he's going to be eating it throughout the course of the days of his life. We can infer from that there's a Um, a end to his days of life. And certainly that is true because in Revelation 20.10, we know that he's cast into the lake of fire. 
And we also know that his head will be bruised, which we understand to be a fatal wound. And that his head will be bruised by the seed of the woman. Now, from the seed of the woman, as we've talked about before, shall come Christ, who shall be both God and man. We see that it doesn't say that the seed of the man shall bruise the head of the serpent, but the seed of the woman. It doesn't say that their seed, plural, shall bruise the the heel of um, the head of Satan. So we can appreciate that something exclusively shall come from the woman, which Jesus did. He, um, the Holy Ghost over uh, came upon Mary, and she was uh, she conceived by virtue of the Holy ghost and by virtue of her own seed. So we have in Christ Jesus, the God man, fully God and fully man. And as I've said before, because sin entered in by man, it is through man that the issue of sin has to be resolved with God. So in Hebrews chapter two, verse 14, we read for as much then as the children, that would be Christians, that would be men for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, that would be he, God, himself likewise partook of the same, partook of flesh and blood, that through death, that would be his death on the cross, he might destroy him, that would be Satan, that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Through, so through the seed of the woman would be manifest Jesus Christ, the God-man, and through his death on the cross, he would destroy the devil who had the power of death. And so it was at the cross that Satan was judged and he was cast out of heaven. And so the Lord speaks about that when on his earthly ministry, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's speaking of how his heel would be bruised and how um, Satan would be cast out of heaven. The Lord says in John chapter 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And so where was he cast out from? Why? He was cast out from the presence of God in heaven. And this through the cross. So Jesus, while walking with his disciples, is speaking about the cross. He's speaking about the occasion where his heel would be bruised and where the head of Satan would be bruised. So his works would be destroyed. So again, he says, I beheld Satan as lightning being cast out from heaven. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, we get some more of the details of this. And Revelation chapter 12 speaks about Christ being manifest in the flesh, being um, birthed by a woman, and how Satan was right there ready to devour um, that child as soon as he'd be born. And so in, very briefly in, in one verse, it talks about she brings forth a man, and he was caught up to heaven. And that would speak of Christ's whole ministry on the earth. And then um, after his death, burial, and resurrection of his ascension, where he was taken up into heaven. And so we pick it up in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 12, where we read, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. The Lord's speaking about this in Luke when he says, I beheld Satan as lightning cast down from heaven. Their place was not found any more in heaven. Verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, here's a, um, a reference to Genesis chapter 3 where he appears as a serpent. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. He's using two terms here, meaning accuser and adversary, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and the strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. 
for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused, past tense, them before our God day and night. And so that's one of the things that Satan does, is he did, rather, he accused the saints to Christ in heaven day and night. And so he was cast out of heaven. And so in verse 17, we read, and it says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now, who would that be? That would be the Christians. That would be those in whom Christ dwells. He makes war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and which all saints do keep the commandments of God in a vicarious way because Christ is in us, and he, of course, is ever obedient to God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Only the saints have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So those are the individuals that the Lord makes war with. In this war, the Lord sets out before us back in Genesis chapter 3, um, when he talks about that there's going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed, and her seed. In this context, he's talking about all of those that are under the dominion, control, and authority of Satan versus all of those that um, keep the commandments and those that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, all of these saints. So we find that interesting language in verse 14 of Genesis where he says, Dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And that's an interesting statement particularly when he then tells uh, us in verse 19 um, that uh, out of the ground were we taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So if you're dust, and Satan's going to eat dust, what do you suppose he's talking about here in terms of the enmity that is between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, the seed of the Christians? Well, you are on Satan's menu, and he's going to attack you and do everything he can do to devour you because that's what he's going to eat all the days of his life. And so there's kind of enigmatic language there, but in 1 Peter chapter 5, um, verse 8 and 9, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, the Lord tells us really very clearly, he says, be sober, in other words, pay attention, think clearly, be vigilant, always be watchful because your adversary... The devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So, in this, using similar language here about eating dust versus devouring people in a spiritual context, that's what the Lord sets before us here. And you are to pay attention to do to pay attention to what um, this very issue that Satan might be seeking to uh, devour you. But he cannot devour you, and I want us to appreciate this because we are protected by our Heavenly Father. He cannot devour you, but he can make life very difficult for you, and the Lord will use him towards his own personal end for your and my good to draw us closer to him. Now, in verse 9 of 1 Peter 5, he says, whom resist steadfast in the faith. We are to resist in faith Satan. Uh, we're not to be um, go after him ourselves. We are not to think that we can, can fight him and uh, resist him of our own accord, but only through um, Christ. So um, we need to pay attention to what's going on around us. We must be ever vigilant and ever watchful because, again, Satan walketh about seeking whom he may devour as a roaring lion. Now, I think it's in Amos where the rhetorical question is asked, would a lion roar if it hath not taken prey? 
And the answer is no. When he's seeking, when he's, um, if, he hasn't, if he doesn't have any prey, well, then he's very quiet because unless he's scared away. So the fact that Satan is, is roaring would be indicative that he does have prey and he is devouring uh, people which are made of dust. So he goes about like a roaring lion. He is devouring people. James chapter 4, verse 7, again, the admonition to resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. So I, I know that when somebody is a new Christian, um, that um, they find themselves uh, having difficulty uh, practicing their faith or uh, exercising faith in Christ. And they have difficulty sometimes getting to church and doing things that um, the Lord would have them to do. Uh, because of the effects of Satan. And so I, I tell people, I don't care what time you get to church. If you get there one minute before it ends, just come because this is the battle that goes on. And if you continue in this battle, you continue to resist him, he will flee. The Lord says he will flee from you, and then you won't be dealing with that issue anymore. And such was our experience in our, our life. We had more trouble getting to church. I can't tell you how much trouble we had. We would have arguments in the morning. We would... Um, you know, have car trouble. We would have all sorts of trouble trying to get out of the house in the morning and get to church. And then eventually we just kept pushing through. We just resisted it. And eventually we showed up to church on time and all of those issues went away. But it requires um, perseverance um, on your part. So resist the devil in the faith and he will flee from you. Now in Luke chapter 10, um, verse 17, I want us to appreciate what the Lord says there with respect to how this comes about. In verse um, 18 of Luke chapter um, 17, the Lord says, I'm going to go back to verse 17, I'm sorry. In verse 17 of Luke chapter 10, he says, this is on the, the context of this is the Lord has sent out 70 disciples two by two throughout Israel, and they are to preach the gospel. And they've returned, and it says, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Then down in verse 19, the Lord says, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. The power to do that comes from Christ. I give you the power to do that. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. So as another Christian has said, as long as we're in this flesh about the Lord's will, we are immortal because he goes with us and he protects us and he gets us to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, if I can use that metaphor, because the Lord uses it. Uh, though the sea might be stormy, we will get to where the Lord wants us to go and we will accomplish the things that he has set before us to uh, accomplish. So he's the one who gives us power to tread on serpents and scorpions and have power over the enemy. That comes from him. Now, in this context, he's speaking of his disciples, but what about you and me? Well, that is true for all of the saints. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the Lord says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now, you're not going to bruise Satan under your feet. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. So it's the God of peace who is bruising Satan under your feet. And so he's a bruised by God under our feet to the degree that we, as led by him, go out into the world and preach the gospel and speak truth into the lives of, into the lives of people. In the book of Matthew and also in Luke, it speaks about the Lord pillaging a strong man's house. He would bind the strong man and then he would take his things from him. And of course, Satan is bound by the Lord. And then we, as his um, 
agents, we as his ambassadors is a better term, go out into the world preaching the gospel, and that is how Satan's house is pillaged, is that um, by preaching the truth and preaching the gospel into the lives of, um, into the hearts of people. God, of course, giving them the faith uh, to believe. Now, I said, as led by him, I qualified that statement, because if you think you're just going to run out and preach uh, uh, indiscriminately, um, that might not go so well for you because you're exercising your own will, you're walking in the strength of your flesh and not listening to the Lord. You must listen to the Lord and go where he leads you because he does warn the disciples in Matthew 7, verse 6, he says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. So God gives us a warning here about really you need to pay attention to the Lord and walk, of course, not by sight, uh, but by faith. And so whenever you go forth and preach, if God has put it upon your heart, by all means, you want to do that, and you want to share that with um, people. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, with respect to this enmity and this uh, war that we're in, he says, we are not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of the devices of, of Satan. He's described as more subtle than any beast of the field, and uh, we appreciate in John chapter 8, verse 44, where the Lord says that he was a murderer from the beginning. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He tempted, tempted, he beguiled, and therefore Eve sinned, and then Adam sinned also, and death came upon all men. In one very short period, in one fell swoop, Satan murdered every human being. Because through this deception, uh, sin entered in, and sin uh, came upon all men, and death by sin. Scripture says that uh, the Lord says he abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar, and that is his most notable characteristic. He is a liar. We read in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 12 that he deceiveth the whole world. So it's not like he's just given you or me feeding us one little lie. He deceiveth the whole world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that he is the God of this world and hath blinded the minds of them that are lost. So people are deceived by Satan and their minds are blinded lest they receive the gospel. He is the prince of the power of the air and he works in the children of disobedience. So he's working in everybody. They're blinded and they're deceived by him and they are doing his will. As I had said some time ago, you are either a slave of Satan or you're a slave of Christ. If you're a slave of Satan, you will do his will and uh, he will direct your um, feet to accomplish his ends. So as Christians, we should appreciate that there's about a, there's three ways really in which uh, we fight this war, all of which are rooted in deception. One is through direct assault by his overt and outward emissaries, um, those who are deceived and then of those in whom he works to do things. And it's interesting because these people will be doing things, and in our case, it's obvious in our legislators, our, our um, elected representatives, that they are legislating things that are harmful not only to us, but they're harmful to themselves. And that is indicative of their own deception. You know, the global leaders want to reduce methane and carbon footprint, so they're, what are they doing? They're shutting down farmers as though these people don't eat also. So they're engaged, their deception is so, is so high, they're so blinded that they're doing things that are harmful to themselves and harmful to their own loved ones, uh, as well as harmful to everybody else. But this is indicative 
that uh, the level of deception that is taking place in their very lives and how that they are doing the things that Satan wants them to do because it's all destructive. It's destructive to us and it's destructive to them. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says that our war is not with them directly. We're not fighting directly um, with um, our legislators. It says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the Lord is telling us here that there's an organizational structure, a spiritual organizational structure over which Satan reigns, always subordinate to God, but nevertheless Satan rules over this organizational structure as the God of this world, as the prince of the power of the air, and he is orchestrating um, things that are at variance with, what, um, with God's law. But again, all things work together for good to them that love God. So we are told because of that we're fighting against spiritual wickedness in high places that we are to be strong in the Lord. That's verse 10 of Ephesians 6. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So our strength rests with being in the Lord and the strength rests on his might. And we are to put on the whole armor of God that he might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, wiles meaning his deceptive nature. Verse 13, he says, again, take on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So our goal is to stand. Really, this is all a defensive posturing. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. And where can you find the truth? In his word. So the Lord is encouraging us always to read his word and to pray on it that he will reveal truth to us having on the breastplate of righteousness, which we have of God. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, whereby ye shall be able to quench all the firing, uh, fiery darts of um, the wicked, and to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, and with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we pray that the Lord would, um, that we would clothe ourselves upon with the truths that he has sent in the scripture, that we would cling to Christ and cling to his promises and pray for each other that um, Satan would not be able to um, lead us out of the way, that we would not stumble because uh, he is deceiving us, um, that he would not uh, keep us from doing the things that we would do in love and to please the Lord because of what Satan is doing in um, our lives. So to protect yourselves from all three forms of attack, again, we need to read our Bible, trust the promises, and, and to pray. So the second way he works is he works within the church. Satan sows discord and division or envy, and he brings forth false gospels. And you can see many churches where they preach what I would call, they are preaching in such a way as to meet the emotional felt needs of the people. You know, are you lonely? Are you hurt? Are you suffering in some way? And so they engage in what I call psychological preaching, meeting the emotional, uh, endeavoring to reach and meet the emotional needs of people and not their spiritual needs. Uh, I find it interesting when I go on a church's website and I see lots of people standing around drinking coffee and eating donuts, and it's all about the fellowship and not about what's coming from the pulpit, and not about what they're being spiritually fed, and that they're being fed the manna from heaven, um, which is truly satisfying and will truly um, uh, 
um, fill our souls. Um, no surprise that he works in the church. The Lord tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that his ministers appear in the church as ministers of righteousness, and Satan himself appears as an angel of light. And so these people appear to be godly people. Uh, they are wolves dressed in sheep clothing. They appear, they're described as false apostles. And so all of the descriptions you'll find of them in the scriptures, they are look just like a Christian. They look like the sheep. They look like the apostles. They look like they are doing the word of God and ad advancing his kingdom, but they're not. They're advancing Satan's kingdom, and they are engaged in uh, deceptive practices to, again, uh, blind the minds of the people um, through deception. Second um, Corinthians 11, it says, endeavoring to corrupt our minds from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so Satan's emissaries would come in, they would talk with you and try to corrupt your mind from the simplicity that it is in Christ. And what is the simplicity in Christ? That our salvation and eternal life rests exclusively in Christ. Our eternal life and our salvation resides exclusively in Christ. All false gospels have this point in common that in some small way, your salvation is rooted in you. In some small way, your salvation is rooted in you. It's rooted in your good works. They'll call them acts of charity. Um, it's rooted in your intellect that you understood the gospel of your own accord. Or it's rooted in your faith that because you believe, therefore you shall be saved. And so that in some small way, more or less, you might glory before your fellow man or before God in terms of your salvation. And God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse um, 17, I'll pick it up there, oh, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. It says there, but God hath chosen, hang on to the word chosen, but God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Quote, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I read the word chosen three times in there because we are chosen by God and not the other way around. He says that to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And the same thing is true with every person that comes to glory. They come to glory because they were chosen by God. So no flesh should glory in his presence. We believe not because the faith was um, rooted in us, our faith is rooted in us, or because of our intellect or because of our works. No flesh should glory in his presence. And the Lord says in Isaiah 42.8, to help us with, appreciate this, in Isaiah 42.8, he says, I am the Lord, that is Jehovah, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, another other than Christ. He will not give glory to any other person because our salvation rests exclusively with Christ. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 he says about who shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 10, he says, thieves. Thieves shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you would steal God's glory, 
you know, then you are a thief and you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the second way the Lord, um, excuse me, Satan endeavors to um, destroy your walk. The third way is that he is the accuser. He is the accuser. Again, in Revelation chapter 12, um, verses 10 and 11, it says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and the strength of the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ for the accuser. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And then in verse 11, we read, And they, that would be our brethren, that would be the Christians, overcame him, overcame the accusations of Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. In other words, we overcame the accusations of Satan by virtue of the work that Christ hath done in our lives. So what do we do? When you've been accused of something, you point to Christ because he is the one who hath dealt with our sins. In Romans chapter 8, um, well, I want to, let me step back for a minute here with respect to this accusation. Satan has been cast out of heaven onto the earth, and he, he goes about now seeking whom he may devour. His name means the accuser. So what does he do? He accuses you among the brethren. He accuses you to yourself, endeavoring to make you feel that you're unworthy or that maybe Christ hasn't done everything that is required to secure your salvation. And therefore, we tend to stop looking at Christ and rather looking towards ourselves. Well, golly, what have I, you know, do I, am I bearing fruit for the Lord? So we start looking at ourselves. And um, the Lord speaks about that with respect to somebody accusing you of something. He says in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 35, he says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? In other words, who will accuse you of anything? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. If you've been justified by God Almighty, then nobody can lay a charge against you. Who is he that condemneth? That's a fair question. Who condemns the saint? Certainly not Satan. Certainly not um, yourself in terms of the Christian. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. In other words, Christ was condemned on your behalf. So who is he that condemneth? Well, God's not going to condemn you because he condemned Christ on your behalf. Yea, rather, that is risen again. If Christ was condemned and is risen again, what does that mean? It means God was satisfied with the penalty that Christ paid. He says that in Isaiah 53, 11. He says that, quote, he saw the travail of the soul, God the Father, saw the travail of God the Son, and was satisfied. So he has risen again from the dead, God being satisfied. He's raised for our justification. And it says, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So Christ was condemned on our behalf. God's been satisfied with the penalty paid. And now he's sitting in heaven as our advocate between um, himself and the Father. And so surely there's no one that can condemn you or accuse you of anything. So he continues in verse 35 of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is there any adversary or accuser that can separate you from the love of Christ? Shall Satan? No. Shall the devil? No. Any of his agents that come as ministers of righteousness? Well, no. Any other people? Do you think I can accuse you before God and that will merit any hearing? The answer is no. Can you yourself separate you from the love of God? 
And the answer is no. Will God himself separate you from the love of God? Well, of course not. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He died for you. And keep in mind, as he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that he commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it was in our state of um, when we were dead in trespasses and sin, while we were sinners, that's when his love was manifest towards us, and that is when he died for us. In Romans 5.10, it says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So it was in that state that his love was manifest in us. And now as his children, having died for us, having shed his blood uh, for us, and indeed even indwelling us, of course, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, Whatever the devil's accusations might be, whatever voices you hear in your ears, you must ignore them. God has washed you, and God has declared that we are fair, meaning we are beautiful and we are handsome. He says that in Song of Psalms, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Thou art fair, my love, there is no spot in thee, meaning we are beautiful and we are handsome in his sight, and he indeed loves us. He declares his love in this verse. And saying that there's no spot in us means there is no defect in us. There is no moral stain of sin of any kind. In 2 Corinthians 11:2, he says that he will present us as a chaste virgin to Christ our beloved. As a chaste virgin, we are pure from every fault. We are immaculate and we are clean. So all of the devil's accusations are false. God says of us in Ephesians 1:4 that we are holy. We are holy and without blame before God in Christ. Holy and without blame before God in Christ. So read your Bible, pray, and believe God's simple promises about what he has done for his people and specifically what he has done for you. So last week we finished off with some uh, parallels in what we read here in Genesis chapter 3 and Christ himself. And I wanted us to think about those again today, particularly as we go and celebrate the Lord's uh, table. In Genesis 3.16, he says that he would greatly multiply the sorrow of the woman in conception and also multiply her conception, that in sorrow she would bring forth children. And I wanted us to appreciate that that is true with Christ also. To bear or beget his children, his Christian children, that he suffered shame and spitting. He was a man of great sorrows indeed. Isaiah 53, 3 says he is a man of sorrows and that he is despised and rejected of men. And so there's a twofold um, sense of sorrow. Um, he was afflicted by the Lord in the days of his fierce ang anger because of our sins. So on one hand, he's rejected by men, even the men he came to save, even the ones whom he has bestowed, uh, upon whom he has bestowed his love. They are rejected. They rejected him. So there's a sorrow associated with that, and then there's a sorrow associated with suffering the wrath of God. And uh, Lamentations again, chapter one, verse twelve, which we've read, it says, "It is not. Is it nothing to you?" All ye that pass by. Imagine Christ on the cross saying this and people walking in front of him while he's on the cross. Um, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, 
which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. And so Christ is suffering great sorrow internally. Um, his heart, we know, I think it's in Psalm 22, is, is, feels like wax. It's melted like wax. He's suffering the wrath of the Father. There's a sorrow associated with that. Um, the, he's suffering that, of course, because our sins were imputed to him. And he's suffering the rejection of men as well. So he suffered great sorrow um, because of uh, the redemption of people. And so the, what we would read as a judgment upon Eve is really a judgment upon Christ himself. When you think of the birth of the church, um, in, it was um, typified, uh, if I can use this language, when he was on the cross and his side was pierced with a spear and forthwith came blood and water. That is not unlike the birthing process of a woman. Um, think of it as a C-section. But nevertheless, the Lord is using all of these things to teach us about the birth of the church and how we can relate that to great sorrows that um, women suffer in the course of bringing forth children. Now, with respect to Adam, again, we see on his Adam that just as the face of Adam, just as the face of man by the sweat of his face would take his um, sustenance from the earth uh, and not by the sweat of another man's brow. And this was an argument that Abraham Lincoln used with respect to slavery because there were many that would justify that evil practice um, from Scripture. Um, his contention was, well, yes, men do work by the sweat of their face, but they do not draw their bread by the sweat of another man's face. So in principle, everybody's got to go out and work for um, what the things that they have. And this certainly Christ did as well. It was by the sweat of his brow that the church was brought forth. It was by and exclusively by his labors uh, that the salvation of the church was, um, was manifest and became a reality. All the labor that was done for your salvation was done by Christ and Christ alone. We did not participate in it, and nor did any other man participate in your salvation, saving the man, Jesus Christ. So, Again, we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Um, in Genesis 3, 21, we read that, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. So because of Adam's sin, of course, he covered himself with fig leaves, which was wholly inadequate. Even after he clothed himself, Adam knew he was naked. It was necessary for God to clothe him, so God went out. God slew an animal, God skinned the animal, God prepared the skin so that it would be suitable clothing, and God dressed them. And years ago when I was preaching on this, I was, what came to my mind was the old Barbie dolls that kids would play with where they, you know, they didn't bend like they do now. Those were difficult to dress. I can imagine what it would have been like for God to dress Adam and Eve here. The point being, God and God alone dressed them. He prepared it and he dressed them. It was all his work, exclusively the work of God. Adam understood this. Adam understood the gospel. We know that when things move forward into Genesis chapter 4, that they are going to have an appreciation of the substitutionary offering. God, I mean, Adam taught his sons the gospel. Adam understands this. He understands that God would manifest himself in the flesh, in flesh, and bruise the head of Satan and secure eternal life for his people. Adam names his wife Eve after the fall and not before the fall. He was, she was named after the fall because she was the mother of all living. That's what it says here. Now, was and is 
the mother of all living. And we appreciate the language that God uses here because what he's telling us is that it is a done deal that Christ would come from the seed of the woman and, and, in, him, and in him would be life, that he would secure eternal life for all of his people, all of the elect. This comes from a, this language, and you'll see this throughout the scripture, comes from a principle that the Lord sets before us in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. In Romans 4, 17, it says, God calleth those things which be not as though they were. God calleth those things which be not as though they were. In other words, as I said, in God's mind, it's a done deal that this is going to take place, that she will be the mother of all living because Christ will come through her and Christ will um, grant eternal life unto his people. That language in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, the context of that, he's referring back in particular to Abram, where he says in Genesis um, 17, 5, he says that I have made thee a father of many nations. God says that in Genesis chapter 17. Abram, of course, had no children at the time, and yet God is speaking as though it's already taken place and already happened because as sure as God is eternal and omniscient, um, it will, in fact, um, happen. Now, in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3 here, it says, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out. So Adam has become as Christ, one of us meaning as the Son of God. He knows now both good and evil. This was knowledge that he gained by being made in the image of God who proclaimed it very good. After God had made the man and the woman and rested, you know, he rested on the seventh day, but before he did that, he declared it all very good. So Adam knew the goodness of God and he knew what it was to be good. He knew what goodness was. And it was also that he's become, uh, that he knows good and evil. It was also knowledge that he gained through disobedience, uh, by which he knew the evil of sin and death. So that knowledge came from an act of disobedience, not from whatever was in the fruit. It's from the act of disobedience. So Adam knew good and evil, and so does Christ. He certainly knows uh, what good is. Uh, He certainly knows the goodness of God because he is God, and there is only one good, and that is God. We learned about that in Matthew 19, 17. There is one good, only God. And uh, as a man who knew no sin neither did any sin, and in whom was no sin, nevertheless, was made sin by God, Second Corinthians five twenty one, where God imputes our sin to him. He was made sin that we might um, be the righteousness of God in him. So he knew the evil associated with sin and death by virtue of our sin being imputed to him. And so uh, for Adam, God in his mercy sends Adam forth from the garden, lest he eat of the tree of life, and live forever in that state, in his body wherein flesh dwells. God put him out, and God had told him, if you eat from that tree, thou shalt surely die. So we appreciate that the tree of life there is Christ, and that's why I had our deacon this morning read from Proverbs chapter 3, where you read the personification of wisdom. If you link verses uh, Proverbs 3.13 with verse 18, and also 1 Corinthians 1.30, you will learn that the tree of life is Christ. So he's keeping us, separating us, that we would not live eternally in our present state. 
And so um, Adam goes from dressing and keeping a fruitful garden to tilling the ground, very different activities. Uh, dressing and keeping a fruitful garden is very different than actually digging in the dirt and bringing forth thorns and thistles. Adam goes from eating herb-bearing seed and fruit-bearing seeds from trees, which is life, to eating the herb of the field in which there is no life. We read in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 3, And so he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turn every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So God prohibits man from going back into the garden, from eating of the tree of life, which is Christ. And so we have in Genesis chapter 2 and in chapter 3, if you kind of step back and look at it a little loosely, we have intimations of the earthly tabernacle, which is a figure of heavenly true things. And we see that it faces to the east, um, whereas the presence of God is in there, from which man is prohibited from approaching. He's blocked by a veil in the tabernacle, which has cherubims embroidered on the fabric of it. So God is setting up parallels and similarities here to that we would appreciate that man cannot approach the heavenly presence of God in his corrupt state. As long as we are in at home um, in this body that we have, we are absent from the Lord. To be present in the body is to be absent from the Lord. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 15 about how as Adam was, we are as Adam was. As Adam was earthly, so too are we earthly, and that as his flesh was made of dust of the earth, and to dust it shall return, so it is true of us as well. However... However, because of what Christ has done, because God hath laid on him the iniquity of his bride, his wife, and imputed the righteousness of God to us, just as we have borne the image of the first Adam, the earthly first man, so too shall we bear the image of the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ. We shall bear the image of the heavenly, whereas our flesh is but dust, where sin dwells, and the Lord tells us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Scripture tells us we must be clothed upon from above, be clothed upon by Christ, that mortality might be swallowed up in life, and corruption put on incorruption, and mortality immortality. And though we all suffer the effects of sin in so many ways, God has made a way through himself, through Jesus Christ, that though we are but dust of the earth, by God's grace, all his elect shall be changed, receiving glorified bodies wherein no sin dwells, and ever be in his presence, everly, ever be in his heavenly presence in glory. Amen. Amen.